Charles Simeon was born in 1759 in England. With a successful attorney for a father, Simeon grew up in a very lavish lifestyle. He attended the best boarding school in England, and that boarding school kind of cemented his heart that was very self-righteous and impressed with himself. And eventually, not only did he go to the best boarding school in England, he went to the best college in England, that is Cambridge, or Cambridge or Oxford, I suppose there's a debate there. But he went to Cambridge at the age of 19, Charles Simeon, and four months into his time there, God brought Simeon from darkness to light. Simeon believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and he was initially prompted to believe after he went to church and was offered the Lord's Supper, and he had this conviction that he should not take it, that he was not right with God. And so the Lord saved him, and Simeon's life changed radically after he became a Christian. He went from a very extravagant lifestyle to a simple and devoted one. Charles Simeon, he would take a position at Cambridge where he went to school, but he also became ordained in the Anglican Church. He eventually received the call to become pastor of Trinity Church at Cambridge, where their pastor, their previous pastor, had just passed away. Now, the problem was for Charles Simeon that the people at Trinity Church did not want him to be their pastor. They wanted their assistant pastor to be their new, their new lead pastor, but so Simeon was willing to step down. But as the Anglican Church works with bishops over dioceses, kind of like the Roman Catholic Church, the bishop of that area insisted on Simeon taking this position. So Charles Simeon stayed. But it wasn't easy. Trinity Church, the people there, rigorously opposed their new pastor. For example, the church, Trinity Church had a second uh, worship service on Sunday afternoons, and they refused to have their new pastor, Charles Simeon, preach at this. Uh, they had, in fact, ironically, the assistant pastor who they wanted preach at this second service. And this went on, not just for a couple of months, this went on for five years. Then, once the assistant pastor moved on, the assistant pastor himself, the guy they wanted, he left, and still the people refused to have Simeon preach at this service. And again, this didn't just go on for a couple more months. This went on for seven more years. That's not all. Simeon's trying to be creative, so he started a Sunday evening service. And many people from the town came. It's almost the people at Trinity Church got upset at this. So the church wardens locked the building so that nobody could get in. And after Simeon got a locksmith and they unlocked the doors, again, the next week, the church wardens got a new lock and locked the doors again for the Sunday evening service. Believe it or not, that's not all. If you've been in an older church, you see that pews some were often set up in different ways than they are now. Pews often had doors on the side of them so that you open up and, and you go into them. I don't know what the, the thought was behind that, but that was the thing. And so on Sunday mornings, the, the people who attended Trinity Church didn't want other, any other new people to sit in their pews, so they locked the doors on the pew doors. And so, now this, so Simeon tried to set up chairs in the aisles and the corners of the building. But then they would get there early, and they would toss all these chairs into the churchyard in front of it. 
And again, this didn't just go on for a couple months. This went on for 10 years. Now, you think of this. Simeon stayed through all these years. How much longer do you think Simeon lasted beyond these first few years at his time at Trinity Church? Any wagers? Over, under? 15? Over. Yeah, you're right. Or it wouldn't be a good story. Simeon lasted 54 years at Trinity Church. Enduring opposition, enduring slander, enduring sickness. Now, not all of the 54 years were marked by such pronounced opposition, but many of them were. Now, I thought, I thought of Charles Simeon when I reflected on the passage we have today. Our passage from 1 Corinthians tells us how the people of Trinity Church in Cambridge, way back in the 1700s, should have viewed their pastor And it shows how their pastor, Charles Simeon, stayed so long. It shows the roots of his endurance. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn there with me to 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 to 5. It's printed in your bulletin, or you can uh, view it in your Bible. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. So far in 1 Corinthians, Paul has addressed this this church's diversion from the gospel that is the main message of Christianity, Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners, He's addressed their diversion from the gospel and infatuation with the worldly and cultural messages around them. So anytime a church runs away from the gospel and toward the world, it's going to have negative effects. In the case of the Corinthian church, the effects were divisions. And as you probably know by now, we've been in Corinthians a number of weeks, these divisions revolved around loyalties to certain teachers. Now, the dynamic in Corinth was that the Corinthians had relationships with several different prominent ministers of the day. We talked about Peter, Apollos, and Paul. Now, instead of using these relationships as opportunities to be thankful to God, they use them as opportunities to amass more influence. Now, I know Paul, so that means I should have the influence in the church. And Paul has told them how silly this is. How silly it is to divide over something like this when they have Jesus. They already have all that they need. There's no need for power plays. Just view these guys as God's gift to you, each one of them. Last week, we were in chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. And it's there that Paul shows them how they should view themselves. If you have your Bible open, you could see how verse 18 begins. He says, let no one deceive themselves. They shouldn't strive after the world's approval when they already have God's approval through Christ. So that was last week. And this week's passage, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul shows them how they should view church leaders. 
Look at how he begins again in verse 1. This is how you should regard us. Now, while church leaders do belong to them, they are gifts to them, Paul's main point in this section is that church leaders, like everybody else, are accountable ultimately to God alone. Accountable ultimately to God alone. And this main point, we're going to see that it acts as a correction, it acts as a comfort, and it acts as a warning. Those are going to be our three big sub-points this morning. Correction, comfort, warning. The first, a correction. We're looking here at verses 1 to 2. Paul corrects their view of church leaders or their view of pastors. He says that they should identify church leaders, and he includes himself in this. Notice he says us. He says they should identify them in two ways, as servants and as stewards. Now, the word for servant that Paul uses here is a little more general than the word for servant he used back in chapter 3 at the beginning of it. The word he used back in chapter 3 was the same word where we get the word deacon. The word here in chapter 4 is more general. It refers to somebody who's in a subservient position, just kind of anybody. So in this case, for church leaders, the ones who they serve is Christ. Paul says, regard us as servants of Christ. So it reminds them, just this title reminds the Corinthians of church leaders what they're supposed to have, a humble position. They exist not to serve themselves, but Christ. So they should view church leaders as servants, and they should view them as stewards. Now, how stewards worked, a wealthy landowner would give this position to his servant to take care of basically all of his stuff, all of his household, to manage it well. If you know the book of Genesis, you think of Joseph and Potiphar. And when he was in Egypt, Joseph was Potiphar's steward and managed all of his stuff. Now, receiving this position means that the owner is entrusting a lot to the steward's care. So in this case, for church leaders, church leaders are stewards, Paul says, of the mysteries of God. That's a very, kind of on the face of it, a strange way to put it. Stewards of the mysteries of God. But again, whenever we're reading scripture, it's good to remember what's come before it. Paul's used this title before in chapter 2, verse 7. He's used this word mystery. And he's used it to refer to just that main gospel message, Jesus Christ crucified. Now, when the New Testament, we look at other usages of this word, mystery, it uses this word not to tell us about something that's mysterious, but to tell us about something that was previously hidden but is now revealed. That's a mystery in the New Testament. So what God has entrusted to these stewards is to care for this message of Jesus Christ crucified that was previously hidden, but now this message is revealed and made known. Stewards are to care for that message, preserve it, proclaim it. Now this position of a steward, we should also say that the steward, just that, the very nature of it, means that a steward is accountable to who, their boss. A steward will give an account to the one who entrusted him, him or her, with that care. Paul will state this more clearly in, later on in this paragraph, but we see this accountability playing out in some of Jesus' parables. Jesus talks about stewards and managers coming back suddenly to see how the stewards were doing. He does this, and you could look at it in Luke chapter 12 or Luke chapter 16. This is how you should regard church leaders, 
as servants and as stewards. I wonder, what makes a good steward? Well, a good steward is one who has taken good care of what's been entrusted to him or her. My dad tells a story. I warned him of this already. My dad tells, him, tells a story of his mom entrusting her Hornet station wagon uh, to him when he was still in high school. He, gets, he got to drive around this thing all the time. And uh, driving around in, you know, Pepper Pike, the bourgeois area that he lived in, uh, he drove down River Road. And as he tells it, there was one infamous little bump on River Road that you could take at like 40 miles an hour and get airborne for like two or three seconds. Daredevil that he is, my dad took this little bump at 50 miles an hour with a car full of friends. And he got airborne for those two or three seconds. He panicked while he was in the air, turned the wheel midair, and when he landed, did serious damage to the car. Now, when he got back to tell his mom what happened, he told her that he had hit a crazy pothole. You wouldn't believe what happened. (laughs) Needless to say, my dad did not take care of the car that was entrusted to him, at least in that instance. In verse 2, notice that Paul says it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. We toss around that word all the time, faithful. It's a very churchy word. The true sense of this word is that stewards would be worthy of the trust that's been placed in their care. Good stewards are trustworthy. You can rely on them. You can rely on them to take care of even what's valuable and what doesn't belong to them ultimately. So just a quick nuance. When we say that the people in Corinth should regard church leaders as servants and as stewards, If we think about this hard, these titles aren't all that special because all Christians are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. All of us are. Every follower of Christ is a servant of Christ. Every follower of Christ is an ambassador for the gospel, is charged to take care of it. So the titles Paul uses in chapter 4, verse 1, aren't all that special. They're not titles of an elite priestly class. They're servants and stewards like everybody else. So on the one hand, this tells us not to say that the work of gospel ministry is all the pastor's job. That's your job. It's not my job. That's just not true. Everybody is a steward and a servant. God uses pastors to help equip the church to become better ones. On the other hand, though, if we say that leaders have these same titles as everybody else, if leaders are stewards and servants just like everybody else, then that means that leaders should be faithful models to follow. So what does it look like to be a good servant and a good steward? Well, that's what pastors should show. So, for example, when we look at a place like 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives sort of the job requirements of a pastor or an elder. He lists what what makes you qualified to be one of these things, to to have this position. And really the only unique qualification is that the pastor is not a recent convert and the pastor is able to teach. Other than that, all the other qualifications that Paul lists in 1 Timothy 3 about who a pastor should be are traits that all Christians should have. 
So for instance, pastors are not to be given to much wine. They're not to be lovers of money. Just because pastors shouldn't be drunks and shouldn't be greedy doesn't imply that the rest of the church is allowed to be drunks and allowed to be greedy. No. Pastors and church leaders are servants and stewards like the rest of the church. By God's grace, they are servants and stewards that others can emulate or follow. So this correction, just this overall point, correcting how they view church leaders as servants and stewards, this correction is, is for the church in general. It, it guards, it's a check on our hearts and how we view things. And it's a check on church leaders in particular. So for the church in general, an important question to ask, you come to any part of the Bible, it's just to ask, why is this here? Why is this here? Why did Paul have to write verse 1? The heading for our first point of this sermon is that this is a correction. Paul has to tell them that this is how they should view church leaders because they viewed church leaders wrongly. The Corinthian Christians took their culture's evaluation of leaders and applied it to the church so that they prized style over substance. They prized prestige and showing off over humility. The Corinthians prized know-it-alls over those who knew their limits. They prized flash over truth. They prized money over people. They prized reputation over integrity. You know, every generation faces this same temptation. Taking the world's values and applying it to the church. And it has many effects, including affecting how we view leaders. Just think of our own age. Not all that unique, but somewhat. We live in a very celebrity culture. It's kind of how people are wired anyway. We love big names. We love to attach ourselves and hook our wagon to somebody who's successful. So we live in a celebrity culture, and that bleeds into the church. The celebrity culture bleeds into the church so that we place too much stock in big-name preachers, and we don't value as much ordinary, faithful leaders. But friends, what's more commendable? Being faithful to the gospel and everybody noticing, or being faithful to the gospel and almost nobody noticing? What speaks more of just the pure preciousness of what we believe and proclaim? So mature Christians value what's being preached and taught more than they value who's preaching and teaching. Now, in other places, yes, Paul will instruct Christians, like in Philippians, to honor church leaders who are faithful. He'll say that. But remembering what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1, that church leaders are servants and stewards, that guards us from having too high a view of pastors. Our faith and trust, this is Christianity 101, but we need reminders of this. Our faith and trust is in Jesus, not a pastor. Through, though this position of a pastor is important, it's weighty, Christ's church does not depend on one particular human leader or teacher. I think Paul's tried to make that point repeatedly to the Corinthians so far. You just bring this home for us. I so appreciate and am humbled by y'all's care and love for me and support for me. But you should just know that in light of this verse, I am a servant, I am a steward. And that, can I say this? 
I am replaceable. I seriously am. That Christ's church will go on. Even the people of Old Oak Bible Church would go on. And God's promises would remain true whether or not I am here. I don't plan to go anywhere, okay? But you just, just know that. So these opening verses, they guard the church as a whole. They correct the church as a whole, their view of church leaders. But they also serve to put a check on the heart of church leaders also. It reminds church leaders again that all of this is not about them. It's about Christ, the one they believe in, the one they serve, the one they point others to. This reminds leaders that to be a leader in Christ's church is first to be a servant. It reminds leaders that to be a leader in Christ's church is not about loving being in charge. It's about remembering that you're accountable. The mark of a good leader in Christ's church is not wisdom and eloquence and initiative and success. The mark of a good leader in Christ's church is faithfulness to care what's been entrusted to him. That is the care of Christ's people and the care of Christ's gospel, to preserve it, to proclaim it, to treasure it. And it's maintaining that stewardship through thick and thin, just like Charles Simeon did over 54 years. So if church leaders want to know how to be servants and stewards, they don't, they don't need to look any further than Jesus himself. Paul likely got these titles of servant and steward from Jesus' own teaching. And like Jesus calls us to do, Jesus lived out what he taught. He practiced what he preached in the ultimate way. We read a little bit of it from Mark 10. But listen to that context from, from our call to worship in Mark 10. And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. A correction on our view of church leaders. When I was in elementary school growing up, I remember having family members who were teenagers, just a, uh, a little bit older than me, so they were just cool. They could, I could, they could do anything, and I would think it's cool. So I noticed their fashion trends. I mimicked their interests. And one of those, I remember, you know, getting rides in their cars. And you, you may remember when this was a thing that you had binders full of CDs in your car. And you had them put on your visors, too. You had the little CDs in the visor of the car. And I, just, I wanted to be like that. Just imagine having all this music in one bulky binder. Man, dreams come true. So one year for my birthday, I asked for cool CDs. That was my request. I don't know how old I was. But then, kind of to my disappointment, the cool CDs that I got were not the, from the artists of the top 40 charts that I saw in the CD stores. That used to be a thing, too. They were from the artists of the, you know, the time of the contemporary Christian music that I did not deem as quite cool. So my binder dream wouldn't come true yet. Alas. The Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, they took their misguided 
and worldly standards of what an effective leader and teacher was, and they applied them to Paul. And they were disappointed. In their mind, Paul was boring. Paul was out of touch. And many thought that the church could do better. Paul responds to their evaluation of him in verses 3 and 4. And he shows not just that he has thick skin, but that he finds comfort in something other than just their opinion of him. So there's only one opinion and one judgment that ultimately matters to Paul. It's not the opinion or judgment of the Corinthians. Notice he says that it's a very small thing to be judged by them or by anybody. You can't give a real verdict about me, Paul says. You know why we could take a sneak peek at verse 5? Because people can't see what other people do in secret. People don't know the whole story. People can't see the motives and attitudes that someone else has. Friends, here's a comfort. What other people say about you, what other people think about you, is not what ultimately determines your worth. What other people say about you or think about you does not determine your ultimate worth. It is not the last word about your life. It is not the last word about the quality of a ministry. That's a good word to all of the people pleasers like me in the room. And it's a good word to all those who've been hurt to all those who have even been slandered and falsely accused. What other people say about you is not the last word about you, is not, does not determine your worth. Now, we say that's a comfort, but at the same time, this is also a warning, if we think about it. What other people say about you isn't the judgment that ultimately matters. Listen, I've attended and even officiated plenty of funerals where people share very nice words about the deceased. I don't want to take away from that, because that is meaningful to an extent. But you can have the approval of people without having the approval of the one who matters. You can. So it's a warning. There's only one opinion and judgment that matters to Paul. It's not people's judgment of him. People are biased and limited. Neither, as he continues, is it his judgment of himself. Neither is it his own opinion. Even though he has a clear conscience, Paul says, he knows that he cannot acquit himself. He lives out chapter 3, verse 18, what he just wrote. He knows that he is able to deceive himself. In fact, before Paul became a Christian, he lived a life of self-deception. He was convinced, he convinced himself that his life of moral purity and religious pedigree and religious zeal gave him a clear conscience and a clear slate before God. That that's what made him get a good verdict from God. He deceived himself. He lived a life of self-deception. But it was a lie. So here is, we talk, this point is a comfort, but it's also a warning. The opinion and judgment that matters to Paul is not from other people. It's not even from himself. And this tells us, friends, that just because you judge yourself and think yourself to be a good person does not mean you are and does not mean you have that same approval and verdict from the one who matters. It doesn't. So where does Paul find comfort? It's not in people. 
is not in himself, it's in the Lord. That's his worth. That's where he goes for assurance of the verdict that really matters. There is only one who will say at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. And the one who says that is not the Corinthians. It's not even Paul himself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of this in light of what Paul's just said in verses 1 and 2. Whom does he serve? Who entrusted him with stewarding the gospel? It wasn't the Corinthians. It was his master, his king, the Lord Jesus. So what matters in the end is not what they think about him. It's not even what Paul thinks about himself. It's what Christ thinks about him. It's this truth that caused Charles Simeon to persevere in hope while pastoring a people who opposed him. This was the truth. Charles Simeon didn't just grin and bear it in persevering. He persevered while not becoming bitter. He persevered while remaining hopeful and loving. That's true perseverance. He knew, Charles Simeon knew that he answered ultimately to God, regardless of what people thought about him. He answered to God. He often called leaders in the church pastors like lighthouse keepers. If he fell asleep, a lot of people would crash on the shores of eternity. He knew, Charles Simeon knew, that God accepted him, that God had already accepted him, regardless of what people said about him. Hear what he, he wrote. He said, with this sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men. This truth isn't just for leaders and teachers in the church. It's for all of us. How do you not let criticism devastate you and at the same time be secure enough to listen to maybe the nugget of truth in that criticism? How do you not let compliments go to your head and at the same time not just deflect them in a false humility? It's because people don't acquit us. Neither do we acquit ourselves. It's the Lord who acquits us. It's because God's good verdict for us is based on performance. But it's not our performance. It's Jesus' performance in our place. It's his perfect life credited to us. And it's his death that takes the place of the verdict that we really deserved. So when you get caught up in how other people think, what other people think of you and how they see you, when you get caught up in what you think about yourself, remember the one you serve. Remember that you answer to him and it's his verdict alone is the one that truly matters. And remember that if you are in Christ, that verdict's already in. It's done. You're free to live the joyful and grateful life of serving the one who acquitted you by dying for you and then brought you into his family. This is a comfort. Now, lastly, in verse 5, we go to the warning. Because leaders in the church are servants and stewards who give an account to God, not to the Corinthians. The Corinthians should not produce unwarranted judgment about these leaders. So verse 5 acts as a warning for the Corinthians just don't do God's job. 
Don't do God's job in determining the faithfulness and effectiveness of a church leader. They shouldn't try to do what God alone can do. What Paul says in verse 5 harkens back to what he said in chapter 3, verse 13, when he said that the quality of a minister's work will be revealed when Jesus comes back to judge the earth. On that day, Paul says here in chapter 4, verse 5, that God will expose what people hide from others and that God will uncover true motives that lie underneath even supposedly good actions. My wife will tell you that I tend to analyze and evaluate everything. Yes, she's shaking her head. From meals to movies to experiences, I just got this tendency in me to assess the quality to the point when almost everything we do, there's a debrief time of me assessing it. We ate two different kinds of ice cream last night, and she... She teed me up for it, though. She asked me what, what ice cream was better because she was trying to, to decide which one to get. So I gave my whole spiel, all the, all the reasons why I thought one was better than the other. Just this tendency to assess the quality of something, to evaluate, to analyze. I think all of us share that to an extent. That's why the cliche is what it is. Everybody's a critic. That's why that's a thing. Underneath this tendency, though, if you think about it, is a selfish entitlement. It's the entitlement that our most important criteria is that we receive the best quality possible. That's what's most important. I wonder if you ever thought about this. What happens when you take that mentality and you apply it to church? What happens when you take that mentality and you apply it to how you evaluate churches and pastors? Well, what happens is you come into church, you gather into church like you would sit down at a restaurant and subtly thinking, maybe not clearly saying, but subtly thinking, this better be good. Here I am, impress me. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, but this tendency and this mentality, our, our critical eyes and assessing quality, it comes out in the question, just the innocent question that we ask after worship. And that question is, how is church? That's a question that you assess the quality of something. And I'm not saying that's a, a bad thing to assess quality, but when we have this mentality, it makes the experience of gathering as God's people all about what it did for you, not about what you contributed to it. It turns us from letting the word evaluate us to us uh, to us evaluating the word, letting the word evaluate us, to us evaluating the word. And this mentality, it keeps us from being gracious, gracious to, to people who we know are faithful. Listen, I'm guilty of this mentality, believe me. And if you think about it, we can, do the, we can carry this mentality to our opinions of other churches as well. You think about it. Our bent toward criticizing and assessing quality leads us to make conclusions about churches that, if we're honest, we don't have firsthand knowledge of. If we're honest. I'm guilty of this, and I think this especially applies to churches we know who definitely preach the gospel but seem to have misplaced emphases and methods. 
Make no mistake, there are plenty of churches, there are plenty of pastors who need the warning of chapter 4, verse 5, that God will expose what they keep hidden. Perhaps some of us have had negative experiences with the church that would confirm that pastors need this warning. But y'all, we need to be careful and humble about overly criticizing and writing off someone too quickly. We don't know the whole story. We don't know what God knows. This makes me think of just the classic story. I refer to it often, just as sticks with me. When we, and how we view other churches, I think of John and Peter after Jesus rose from the dead, John 21. You know, they're on the shore, they're eating breakfast with the resurrected Christ. And there's, there's this rumor that uh, the apostle John is somehow not going to die. And Peter's asked, and in the Peter way, he asked Jesus, you know, what gives with this? sign me up for this too and Jesus is like what happens to him what does that matter to you you follow me I think we need that mentality more instead of this just poisonous comparison and this poisonous assessment of quality follow Jesus and be more gracious Now, this is not to say, we'll nuance this point too. This is not to say that we shouldn't care about quality. It's not to say that we should just toss discernment out the window. Other places in the Bible leave space for judging and evaluating teachers. You remember the book of Galatians. Paul told the Galatian Christians that they shouldn't put up with teachers who don't preach the gospel. They shouldn't put up with them. You remember even Galatians too, that's Paul got in Peter's face when Peter's actions were out of step with the gospel. You might remember when Paul ran into Timothy, he says that if there's a report, a critical report about an elder's sin that proves true, that the church should discipline that elder. That's judging a teacher. So what Paul's saying here is not that we shouldn't care about quality or toss out discernment. What he's saying here is to be careful of being so critical that you can't receive any faithful teaching because you're too busy criticizing it. In line with verse 5, we should look more for what to commend than what to criticize. So we who have a critical spirit like the Corinthians, it's often the most critical people who forget to judge themselves with the same standard that we judge others. Paul uses almost the same language he does in verse 5 in Romans chapters 2 and 3. And when he uses that language in Romans 2 and 3, he doesn't just apply it to church leaders. He applies it to everybody. Everybody, the Corinthians included, will give an account to God. And, you know, particularly weighty for me, a part of verse 5 here in 1 Corinthians 4, is that God will disclose the purposes of the heart. Well, that's, that just weighs on me. Because if, if you know yourself like, like I know myself, I know that my motives are so mixed all the time. Like I very seldom have pure motives for anything. It's just that's, that's how much sin taints our hearts. So think about God disclosing the purposes of our hearts. The Bible says that whatever is not done from faith is sin. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. This means that you can live a life even of doing good things, but you could do them for the wrong reason. 
You can live a life of doing good things, but the hidden motivation of your heart, why you do them, is not to honor God. The hidden motivation of your heart is to honor yourself. This means that literally you can have a life of doing good things, but the entire purpose and motivation of your life is sinful. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. This is why the first commandment is the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. If that's not in place, everything you do is tainted by sin. That's weighty. No wonder Paul says in Romans 3.19 that every mouth will be stopped when we stand before God. And no wonder why when we stand before God, our only hope is Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is pure, even to the level of his motives. That's unbelievable. Well, in conclusion, how they should view church leaders, how the Corinthians function as a church. Maybe each paragraph of this passage, the takeaway could just be, don't lose your head. Don't lose your head. That is the head of the church. The church functions as God intends when everybody remembers who the head of the church is, Jesus Christ. We exist to serve Christ, not ourselves. This guards church leaders against, the, against pride. It guards the church in general against using leaders for selfish gain. The head of the church, Christ, has entrusted us with the gospel of the cross. This keeps leaders in the church faithful and focused on the main task and it guards the church in general from evaluating teachers by worldly and selfish standards. The head of the church, Christ, is the one to whom we'll give an account. That keeps us persevering through doubt and discouragement. That keeps us leaning on him alone, who is the one who acquits us by standing in our place. And that keeps us leaving to him what he alone can do. Don't lose your head. Charles Simeon had this same mindset. He, a, biography of, a biographer of Charles Simeon wrote this. He said, Everything in Simeon's preaching radiated from Jesus Christ and returned upon him. He knew that Christ was everything for him. For him, Christ was the center of all subjects for sinful man, and all his hearers were for him sinful men, for whom the gospel of Christ was the one remedy. The same for us. Let's pray. Lord, we, in light of this passage, we ask that you please correct us where we stray because we are, we are biased and influenced in ways we don't know. Correct us by your word. We are but stewards and servants. Lord, comfort us. God, that when we get caught up in how other people view us and how even we view ourselves, that we remember that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that the verdict is in. And Lord, would you also warn us not to take your place, not to do what only you can do. Keep us from our critical spirit and evaluating others to the point where we just write them off, even though we don't know the whole story. Help us, God, to focus on you, to focus on Christ, the one we serve, the one we follow, the one we point others to. We pray in his name. Amen.